before I forget, I would like to take this opportunity to talk about our financial conference, the Code Green Financial Literacy Conference for Physicians, happening on February 2nd, 2024 in Toronto at the Novotel Hotel in North York, which is straight in front and across the street from the North York Centre subway station, so easily accessible by public transit. So please come and join us for this wonderful full-day in-person conference speaking about financial literacy that is geared towards physicians. If you want to learn more, please go to www.codegreenfinancial.com. Again, it's www.codegreenfinancial.com to learn more about the conference, look up the speakers and the guests and the topics. It's a full day conference starting at 7.30 in the morning with a breakfast, a lunch, two nutritional breaks, and even a wine and cheese. So lots of food, lots of learning, lots of opportunities to ask questions to our guest speakers, lots of time to network and to mingle, and also learn about something that has been deficient in our training, and that is financial literacy, which is very important because I strongly believe that financial literacy or the lack thereof is directly tied to our burnout. So please come and join us for this conference. I am sure you will have a wonderful time. So please meet us at this conference on February 2nd, 2024 and visit us at www.codegreenfinancial.com. The early bird is up to December 31st and the price is $150 plus tax per person. And after December 31st, it will be $200 plus tax per person. So the website again to visit us and learn more is www.codegreenfinancial.com. Hope to see you all there. Okay. Uh, I wrote here, um, financial mistakes typically is a lot of people have their money tied into their house, especially at that age, you know, 55, 60, 65, they've accumulated a lot of money. They put all that money in their primary residence. So their house is worth three something million, four something million, but they don't have cash flow or they haven't thought about, you know, how to take the money out from their house at a later stage in their age. Initially, when they're working in their working lives, they they are investing in, you know, what everybody tells them to do, mutual funds, stocks, index, etc. And then they realize, oh, they need to diversify or they need to put in something less riskier than the market. Or they have children that have to now go to university and all of a sudden they're buying a condo here and a condo there. And so they're investing in real estate late in their lives. And now they're taking on new debt when they are winding down their practice. So you're right. So taking on new debt at a late stage or taking on leverage investment at a late, at a late in career is not a good idea. Yeah. financial health doc welcome to the financial literacy podcast for healthcare professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo so let's come back to our top 10 so we've now making to top five now and this one is we talked a little bit about, which is real estate. So having too much money tied into our house. And I've actually did a show on that, an entire podcast called You Cannot Eat Your House. Um, what did we mean by having too much money in our house? There's a couple of mistakes in judgment or in, in planning that, that sort of consumers will make. One of them is that putting money in and managing your house, building a beautiful home, you know, finding your perfect second home, your forever home, whatever you want to call it. It can be problematic. It is a, it's a valuable asset. So whether you like it or whether you're a renter or a buyer, 
it's not a worthless uh, exercise one way or another. It's where your family grows up and there's some really great reasons to have, um, you know, exactly the home that you want. I think the problem is it is very easy to decide or to say 20 years before you uh, downsize that I'm going to downsize and this is how I'm going to do it. By the time you are in your 60s and approaching your 70s, let's say, or even the 50s, it is, it is the case, you become set in your ways. Your family, your friends, they're all in a certain location. You have expectations. And so it becomes much less likely that you're going to be willing to use your house as a source of income or capital from which you can take income. Um, so the two reasons why, the two things that are most often assumed are, the number one is, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to a smaller home and downsize. Uh, and as I sort of described to you when we were talking through this list, often that's not the case. So in many cases, if you have you know, the most common that I think I've seen is you have a small footprint in the center of an urban space. So you live in the, you know, in the heart of downtown Toronto or in a desirable neighborhood in, in many of the areas in the GTA. And you move out and you give away land or sorry, you give away a location for land. And so you don't, you find your next final beautiful home that you're going to live in for the rest of your life, just you and your spouse, let's say, and your kids and grandkids are going to come, but it's not a cheaper or less expensive property by any means. The flip side is I've seen lots of people move further, closer to their families who are living in the urban centers and, and are not releasing capital whatsoever. So that's a problem that I think that's a problem in just planning. It's not a functional issue. All of those are fine things to do if you have the money to do it. But indicating that you're going to downsize your house for uh, to get some cash flow later on is is something I've really not seen done effectively in my career yet. I'm pausing to try to think of whether I'm right or wrong, but I don't recall it. So the other problem is there are strategies to release money from your house if you don't want to sell it, but they all involve debt. And uh this is a this we'll talk about this later, but you don't really want to be borrowing later in life. You know, the Canadian home income plan would be one of them. So reverse mortgage, if you need it, is a strategy that's available. Uh, but it is what I would say a close to a last resort. And if you don't want to sell your house, that's the only way to get a, a cash flow from it. Either that or you, you know, you start to rent a basement apartment, which has another series of, of complexities that you may or may not want to get into. So your money is a great sorry, your house is a great asset where your money can grow very effectively, but it's not an income source. And therefore you want to be careful that you are not dedicating your entire financial career to building up a fantastic real estate holding in a non-income producing property. This is worth repeating again. And therefore you want to be careful that you are not dedicating your entire financial career to building up a fantastic real estate holding in a non-income producing property. And, and we can extend this one too from house to vacation property, right? So that's, you know, you've got the two issues. The only difference between the two, they, neither of them really produce an income. Well said. Um, I think the word that you use, which is really, really important, is holding a lot of assets into one asset that is not an income producing asset. Uh, and that's the word. It's not an income producing asset uh, in retirement. So that's why you can't eat your house because you can't eat the brick off your house. And if you still need the income or you still need the cash flow to survive for daily, uh, daily uh, payments and, and financial commitments. And so I see a lot of this uh, with my colleagues right now. They're in their late 60s, almost 70s. They have a beautiful you know, home that is worth three, four million dollars but they have to continue working because they they need the income they need the cash flow and uh they they don't want to sell their house of course i wouldn't want to sell a beautiful house either but then they are forced to continue to work to generate that cash flow because that home doesn't produce any income uh and so that's i think one of the myths that we promulgate among our, among our community is that one, oh, buy the house and then um, put every money in your house. And then when you grow older, then you can sell the house. To your point, we don't sell our house. Second point is we don't necessarily downsize. Third point is we may be living in a more 
rural community area, and now we want to move closer to our children or grandchildren, which is in an urban center, and we actually need more money to buy the next house. And so those are the myths that we promulgate within our community. The other the other myth that we promulgate in our community is, well, when you when you retire, you'll have um, you'll have less income, therefore you're going to pay less taxes. Uh, and you and I have talked about that. That's not always necessarily the case. Yeah, no, I would agree. And so these are the types of what I call urban myth within our community that happens quite a bit. Okay, so now let's talk about the next common mistake is it's tied to this uh, concept of house as well, but not always just the house. <laughs> so it's taking on debt too late in life. So uh, I'll give you an example. I have a colleague who... Uh, has worked 35 years, family doctor, close to retirement in her, in her 60s, and all of a sudden bought a condo for $2 million and now has to uh, now feed money into this mortgage of $2 million. And now she realizes she can no longer retire. And so the concept is taking on debt at a very late stage in her career. And it's not just for the house, there are many other assets. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, borrowing is a fantastic method lever to increase your wealth if done properly and responsibly. If you kind of put yourself in the bank's shoes, uh, just for a second, and I'm not trying to like sympathize for them, when a banker, when a bank is assessing whether they want to lend or not, the the joke always is they're only going to lend to people who don't need money, and so those would be people who have assets and who have cash flow. So if you don't have assets or you don't have cash flow, you're unlikely to get a loan. So when you are closing in on retirement, you may or may not have assets, but you are going to be in a situation where you're no longer earning uh, an income external to your investments. And so when you're judging whether or not you want to take on debt, you need to really be certain that you can finance the debt that you're taking with all of the available income that you've got. Taking into account, you may or may not be able to earn an income or you may not be earning an income, number one. And number two, your investments, or if it's, let's say, real estate, like if you're buying a place and you want to rent it, your tenants may not give you as dependable as an income as you're used to when you worked for a living, which was a dependable income. And so lots of real, like lots of leveraged scenarios look great on paper, whether it's real estate, especially for income. Uh, whether it's uh, leveraged investments, uh, which uh, are, are often problematic um, simply because investments tend to be very volatile and they don't give a dependable income. Um, certain leveraged insurance strategies may look good, but they have some practical issues. On the surface, none of them are good or bad. When you are no longer earning an income and, and more importantly, you're depending on the investment output, the yield from your investments to live, borrowing is a lot more problematic than it was when you were in your early or mid-career. As we age, coming back to this concept of we should not take on additional risk that we haven't really thought through and being able to mitigate it if things hit the fan, right? And yep. so it is not at the age of 60, 65 that we go on and get a second job or a third job <laughs> when when whatever hits the fan. Your financial planning should be about, you know, being able to spend whatever money you want to spend. And that's defined only by the individual uh, without fear of depletion, right? Without running out. But it should also, you should also be able to sleep at night. So you you shouldn't have a financial plan that, that causes stress or anxiety or, or increases complexity, especially when you're at later years. Uh, unless you're absolutely sure that you want that stress and complexity in some way. Be careful when you're taking debt that you're not painting yourself into a corner. And I think that's probably what debt often does for people is it gives them a strategy that they now have to participate in whether they like it or not. Ooh. And I think that's the other piece of it, which is, hey, it could actually be that it's exactly the right strategy, but it is very difficult to unwind for some or all of the period that you're that you're involved in it. So anyway, so that's really what I would I would suggest as, as a, another cautionary sort of... Um, uh, piece of advice. Very good. Very good advice. Point number six or mistake number six. Uh, sorry, number seven. Number seven. Um, this concept of being self-insured. 
I've heard this many times. Uh, we've accumulated wealth throughout our career. Uh, we've retained enough money in our in our corporation. We've we've put it a lot of money in the non-reg account. So, Doctor Tran, you you can self be self-insured. Uh, you don't need life insurance anymore. Uh, and um, you know, if there's any problem, you know, take it out of your corp or take it out of your non-reg account. So that that's the concept. Let's elaborate a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's insurance. Like I've I actually started in insurance and then moved to more broad, you know, into into more broad wealth accumulation, and then now primarily a portfolio manager and a planner that that understands all of these different pieces of wealth accumulation. It's always the case, and rightfully so, that life insurance is a conversation that people are uncomfortable having because it deals with it deals with death. And the thinking is, well, the only way I'm going to get anything out of this is when I die. And that's unsavory. And therefore, people move on and they write it off. You know, the other potential disadvantage is insurance, because it is generally sold, rather than, you know, I'll say advised, meaning lots of people don't want to talk about it. And therefore, the industry has to be more aggressive, just to get that conversation started. And so sometimes that that the group of individuals, let's say insurance agents that, that promote this stuff can be quite aggressive. So in many ways, it's earned its reputation. But if you step back and you look at it as a tool in the toolbox, it may not be right for everybody, just like owning a home may not be right for every, just like an RSP may not be right for everyone and a corporation might not be ready for everyone. But it is a viable strategy. It is one that gives you wealth. It is one that gives you wealth that you can use while you're alive. Um, and it's one that allows you to transition wealth very effectively upon the passing of either you or your spouse or both. And therefore, it should not be waived for all of the reasons I said up front, which is it's unsavory or I don't like the people who are talking to me about it. Furthermore, much like believing that a corporation is or isn't a good idea or an RSP is or isn't a good idea, Tax professionals who say, no, I don't believe in life insurance um, also should be questioned because it's simply not the case that it is something you can write off as a bad idea um, out of the gate. And so I think for all of those reasons, you know, insurance gets a bad rap for lots of reasons. Other professionals tend to shy away from recommending it. I think consumers, particularly consumers who have uh, the ability to accumulate wealth and even more specifically in that group the group that have a corporate entity, those individuals should really seriously consider buying insurance. I would say investing insurance, but it's it's you're purchasing a product, but the outcomes are very much investment-like and they really do drive some significant benefits to individuals, not just again, as a legacy payment, but throughout the span of the time that they own that policy. There are pros and cons to every decision, strategic decision, right? There are pros and cons to owning life insurance until your late stage career, life, and death. And there are pros to that. There are also pros to being self-insured, and there are cons to being self-insured. That needs to be analyzed thoroughly to the individual. You know, a, a blanket statement that says, Dr. Tran, you're 55, you're 60, you have enough money, you don't need life insurance anymore, you should just self-insure, that type of blanket statement is detrimental. The same way we say everybody should get whole life insurance, that's also detrimental. Um, and so I think it's important to really have that deep dive analysis and not buy into these type of dogmas that are spread in our community. And the problem is, these dogmas are spread within our community because we don't know better. We don't know how to analyze these these blanket statements. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it is you know the way to self insure yourself if you if you die if you're the second of two spouses to die right so you've got a spousal rollover and you only have a house and a tax free savings account and a non registered investment account with only cash. Or fixed income in a uh, in a rising rate environment, let's say um, you're going to have no real income tax to speak of in your final year. You'll have probate, right? But that's we'll, we'll scratch that off. The problem with that is 
If you have waived all of the other tax strategies going through your life, you will have less money by the time you actually are self-insured. So if you choose to self-insure, then I think the best way of thinking about it is you're going to be self-insuring a lower number. If you avail yourself of all the available strategies, often you will have a higher number, which is ideally what we're talking about. So it's it's not about greed. It's just about proper planning and availing yourself of that. You have a much higher number. For example, you're earning income in the corporation at 12% rather than earning income in personally at 53. Um, there are a whole bunch of different ways you can look at it. However, you're going to be self-insuring a lower number, almost certainly. And again, as a planner, I know I can't make that statement across the board. There are lots of nuances to how people accumulate their wealth. But intuitively, if I have a high income individual who is earning income at the highest marginal rate, and in fact, significant income above the marginal rate, I know that there are strategies that if they have not participated in, then the concept of self-insurance means we are going to insure a significantly lower number than we would have if we had availed ourselves of all of those strategies and then had to find an insurance company with whom we need to make a contract called a life insurance policy to help me insure a bigger problem that I created by being effective in how I accumulated my wealth. Again, I'm going to I'm gonna applaud you for <laughs> putting, putting the words in the way you did because it is very important. As we progress in our career and in our profession, we become better at making money uh, because we get raises. We we become better at what we do. We're more efficient. So we make more money. So we accumulate more money. And so we have done well for ourselves over time, especially in the later stage of our career. And so if we don't have strategies to mitigate the the tax implications of all that, and we have not availed ourselves to the insurance strategies, then at the end, we have self-insured ourselves to a lower amount. And 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 that's exactly what we're talking about. And so you, you have put it very eloquently uh, and explained it very, very eloquently because th- this is the concept that we don't understand. Um, that, of course, we could be self-insured. We make enough money to be self-insured. But by being self-insured, we actually avail ourselves to less amount at the end. And it's not necessarily at the end, because this is a great, great segue to our next mistake, which is not having financial contingency plans for emergencies. I, I'm self-insured, I've got this money, and then I did not plan for the different emergencies, and now I have to deplete my savings. Uh, and when I deplete these savings, I no longer have that self-insurance anymore because I've depleted it. Um, and so how can we plan for these contingency plans and the fact that we haven't even thought about it? So let's let's dive a little bit into that. Yeah, I mean, so when we're in our 30s and 40s, it's really easy to articulate the issues that we have to deal with that are contingencies. Paying off a mortgage if someone passes away paying for education for our kids in that instance. You know, if you look at the trajectory of your earnings, if you can earn half a million dollars inflation adjusted, right? So maybe 300 in real terms, but half a million dollars a year for 30 years, once you've kind of finished all of your training, you know, that's a lot of money. And so understanding that a disability contract that that replaces that income, at least to a degree, is something you want to, those are all pretty easy to kind of, conceptually understand those contingencies change in character um, as you get older. One of them is, you know, we talked like one of the aging parents. So you've got an issue to deal with aging parents. Um, Those parents may or may not live in your home municipality, in your home province, in your home country. You've got the issue of, uh, you know, we went back to, you know, planning to work too long was our number one uh, issue. So you plan to work till you're 70 and you're physically, you can't anymore. So, you know, as a surgeon, you're, you know, you begin to, uh, you know, let's say develop a tremor of some kind and you can't uh, operate. There are many reasons why you just immediately become ineffective in your chosen career. And it happens to can happen to anyone. Um, you know, physicians uh, probably, you know, as a compliment, I would say the, 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 the most physically active profession out there, um, I'm comparing to lawyer, let's say, or accountant, you're up and moving around and often dealing with individuals. There's a lot of things 
that go into the day in a day in the life of a, of a physician and and treating and caring for patients. So the ability to work um, late in life, going back again to that point, is something you want to be sure about. Um, and then not having those conti- like those contingency plans. Um, you know, your kids, the 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 joke about boomerang kids. So your kids leave, they go to university, they get education, they get um, their career started, but they need help in doing that. Um, with the price of real estate in many, you know, many areas, uh, certainly of our country, sometimes it's just an issue of saving, and that is a financial burden that you may or may not want to have. So I think it's it's the the real kind of conceptual problem that people are making is imagining that once all of the ones that they worry about in their 30s and 40s are gone, that there are no more issues. And in fact, there still are risks to your financial planning uh, late in career that are just different. They have the same flavor, but they're, they, 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 they come from different places. And that's exactly it. I mean, the, the, the emergencies are there. They're just different, different types. So let me, uh, if I can, share a few stories with you and the audience i have a colleague who's in his late 60s her her mother uh has now dementia but lives in another city uh and now uh my colleague has to care for this uh parent who's in another city and who can't not live alone so she now has to pay for a retirement home assisted living that is costing probably in the range of nine to 10,000 a month. And so that that obviously was not an emergency that or uh, something that sh- she had planned for. Another colleague who his son is uh, an older adult son uh, who suffered a car accident uh, and now has traumatic brain injury and now has to be cared for. Again, uh, these type of emergencies will quickly deplete your savings, quickly, quickly deplete your savings. And by the time it's all said and done, I'm concerned that my colleagues will not have, you know, what we talked about, getting to retirement, enjoy retirement, and most likely will not have any legacy or or wealth transfer to the next generation. And I'm forget about point number three. I'm not even sure that they'll have, you know, uh, enjoyment at retirement, given how fast these assets are depleted. These issues, these these um, contingencies, are are sort of unsavory things to think about. But I think again, if your if your plan is just to kind of continue head down, kind of continue working until you're seventy, there's a there's a there's a series of things that can run that off the rails pretty quickly, with a reasonably high probability of one of them occurring. Again, if you don't have children, then you're not going to have that issue, etc. Um, but uh, but sitting down and again, I as a planner. Uh, it's kind of where I start, but understanding and how those can affect your plan, um, would be, would be, would be a very valuable exercise. So let's move on to point number nine, which kind of deals with this a little bit, which deals with illness and morbidity and sort of curveballs in life. And it's the fact that many of us have no wills or estate plans. So we haven't planned for that. Uh, we, don't take the time for it because it's not a priority. Uh, just to share my own story, uh, the the time that I thought about doing a will to the time that I actually signed on the dotted line for a will took me four years. <laughs> and I procrastinated, procrastinated, procrastinated until I got finally got it done 2020, just before the pandemic. And that's when I realized, what if I died? in the emergency department because I caught COVID. At least I got a will and a plan done. But um, it took me four years and I procrastinated as well. I'm, I'm, and I'm surely not the only one. I think maybe a good place to start would be to understand that a will actually, in, and really wills and powers of attorney should be done and updated together just to make sure that they're current and, and so on and so forth. But a will and a power of attorney are documents. An estate plan is a it's a, it's a bigger exercise. You and I have a similar uh, experience in doing a will. You know, I know this business quite well. And from our original sit down with our lawyer to signing our will was about a two-year process. So an estate plan is all of the things that we've talked about and many more other items 
brought together in sort of to a coherent, this is what we're going to do. More importantly, starting today. So my estate plan is for when the second of me and my spouse passes away. Statistically, and I'm 50, so I'm just a little older than you, but I am, you know, we are 40 or more years away from the probability of that estate plan crystallizing, uh, meaning the second of the two of us dying. But we need that plan and that plan will change. In order to put that plan in place, we have to do a variety of things. We need to have the right accounts. We need to have the right products. We need to have the right assets. We need to have all of these things. And then we need to have the right behaviors. So whether they're systematic things like doing tax uh, planning a certain way or you know, knowing how much we're spending and, and not obviously spending too much and uh, understanding where that the, those, those, those funds are coming from and going to what our incomes are going to look like, what our retirement dates roughly look like so we understand what that is. All of those are part of my estate plan. They're also part of my retirement plan. Uh, and they're also, in many cases, part of my day-to-day, year-to-year annual planning. The estate plan is probably the most comprehensive plan you're going to make financially in your life because it involves a lot of different elements. It's going to involve a lot of different professionals. It's going to involve a lot of documentation. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but a number of different pieces of documentation. The central piece of your estate plan is your will. It is the legal document that's going to direct traffic the day after you pass away. Um, And in the case of that, it'll direct traffic regardless of whether it's you or your spouse, whether you're first or last, et cetera. And, uh, And so that document is central to all of the plans that you've made and it needs to be up to date. And if you've got a relatively complex estate, and by that, I mean, you've got, you know, a number of personal investment accounts. You may or may not have a pension. You may or may not have a corporation. You may or may not have a second property or a third or rental properties. All of those things need to be dealt with in the will. They need to be discussed actually by the document um, or not. By the way, there's a, <laughs> there are strategies where you on purpose don't discuss things and you have separate documents to deal with other things. But again, that's part of proper planning. So you can have multiple wills, for example, for different assets uh, in order to avoid probate on some of them. Document the will and the power of attorney, which really deals with approaching the date of death. So as we lose capacity, um, you know, it's not often the case we get to neatly die in an instant. Um, It is unfortunately most often the case that we deteriorate, whether suddenly or over a long period of time. That power of attorney directs traffic leading up to an event. And then, you know, the will really does start to list everything and what needs to be done by the executors of the estate. And, uh, and, and so, again, estate plan is the big concept and the will is the focal point. And in between the big concept and the focal point are all sorts of other things that your accountant or your lawyer or your investment advisor, or your insurance advisor can bring to bear to enhance that estate plan. So... Uh, again, very well said and put into perspective. Uh, you mentioned also, you know, the house, the vacation home, the yacht, the whatever. And we may not have all this, like a lot of physicians may not have all these things, but there's some complexity still uh, within our lives. And I'm talking about blended families. So uh, a lot of my colleagues have blended families and that adds just another level of complexity without even talking about the cottage and the vacation home and the yacht and all that. So absolutely, these need to be in place. And as you say, the the will is the central uh, policeman that guides the traffic. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, last one. We've uh, we've come to the last one, uh, Jamie. Uh, this is this is less financial, more psychological, but nonetheless important, is that we don't know how to retire. So we 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 think that at sixty five or seventy or seventy two, one day there's going to be a magic fairy that's going to wave the wand and I'm retired and life is beautiful. Uh, and uh, that's how we think of retirement, but it's actually not that way. We need to also plan for the non-financial aspect of retirement. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you and I both came at this uh, with a the topic in mind, but for different reasons. So 
uh, I'll speak to all of them and you can detail your points, but yours were very much uh, something that I will deal with in, from my own point of view is if I sort of decide to retire, which is that psychological piece of moving through, but there is a more practical, I'm going to call it um, psychological piece. I, it doesn't deal with my identity or, or anything like that, which is, it is a daunting and sometimes quite unsettling concept to lose a source of income. And much of the anxiety that I have seen around retiring is actually in people understanding what uh, I'm going to say selfishly, I think is a simple, or I used to think is a simple concept. When I say selfishly, it's because I deal with everything on a day-to-day basis. I understand the mechanics of everything, but what I didn't understand I was being asked until about halfway through my career is, no, no, no. Like, What exactly is happening in my bank account? How? So today I get X amount of money paid to me either personally or through my bank account, either directly or indirectly from OHIP, right? In the case of a physician, I know where that's coming from. And by the way, OHIP is a pretty reliable payer. Uh, and therefore I'm not worried about it. And I'm not uh, worried about my career. You know, let's say I've got a tenured position at a teaching hospital. I, I have no risk of losing my income other than let's say my health. Once that goes away, the question that I get asked and that I need to articulate to people uh, is, no, no, like, where's the money coming from? So the answer is not just simply, oh, well, we get a rate of return of X and therefore it generates Y and that's how you get the income. That's not a sufficient answer. And so having a conversation early on, like if you're five or 10 years out of retirement, it doesn't hurt to say, walk me through how this happens. Like say you're your investment advisor, walk me through how exactly I'm going to get my money. And, uh, and then you will learn about things like, you know, you know, you can, um, you can sweep dividends out of an account. You can create automatic cells of certain assets. You can definitely create systematic plans where a withdrawal is made from an account. You can do that from any number of different types of accounts, whether it's a registered account or like a RSP or a RIF, you know, a TFSA, although it's not recommended and I'll get into, we won't get into that today. You know, there's lots and lots and lots of different places from which you can get an income and it is personal. It depends on what you have accumulated and where your money is. And so understanding and walking through the practicalities of that is something that I think you want to do before you start feeling anxious about it, just to understand what exactly does it look like? That is uh, that is a very important point because uh, I haven't thought about that either. I mean, I'm I'm obviously not at time of retirement, but I do want freedom fifty five. But whenever that happens, I'm like, yeah, okay, where does it where does the money come from? Does it come from RSPs? Does it come from my pension? Does it come from my TFSA? And there are many many solutions, many strategies out there, and so having understanding that is important. Uh, something you didn't mention, but it just came to my mind as you, you were talking annuities, which I'm going to have a podcast on. So maybe annuities is a, is another option on the table for, for certain people. Um, the way I came about to this topic, as you were mentioning, was more the psychological uh, aspect of, of things. And that's because I'm, even though I'm not in retirement, I'm, I've been thinking about it and I've been thinking more of you know, how does it impact me as, as a person, as an individual, as a professional? Will I be forced into retirement because I've got an illness that forces me to retirement? As you mentioned, the surgeon with the trauma, with the tremors or an ophthalmologist that loses his eyesight or, you know, whatever, whatever other comorbidities that can happen. And am I optimizing my solution, my strategies? And more importantly, when I stop practicing and I'm no longer an emergency doctor or I'm no longer a surgeon, I'm no longer a family doctor, who am I? We spend our entire career, sorry, we, we spend our entire lives getting to where we are just to get into medical, to get into residency, fight through residency, fight through other doctors to get into a position into a hospital having to do five PhDs just to retain my position in that hospital. So I've tied my entire life to this identity of me being a physician. And all of a sudden, I'm no longer a physician. I, I think that is a hard thing to accept, more than the finances. Uh, it's 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 one of those things that if you haven't really thought about it or haven't really addressed it or, or will not address it, it's going to be a really, really hard pill to swallow. And in, in fact, when you ask yourself, 
who am I? It is a existential question. And that happening because you're forced into retirement or because you retire, you're retiring without planning, thinking through that can be quite um, jostling, you know, to to the to the person and to the emotion. And that's how I came about, about it this way. Uh, and you came about it from a finance perspective. But again, not thinking about that prior to retirement is one of those mistakes for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the way that you approach it is a much more complex problem. Dealing with the simpler, like knocking off, how's this going to work? You can do. Uh, it's not beyond anybody's, you know, capacity to understand exactly how this works within a fairly short period of time. Might take a couple of runs at it. Um, again, sometimes simple concepts, if they're outside of your sphere of knowledge, just need some context. You can deal with all of these issues of how is it going to work so that you can be less stressed about the more, uh, as you say, existential issues that you're going to face. I'm going to face it. You're going to face it. All of us in different ways of how do we enjoy retirement and how do we how do we um, how do we really maximize and optimize our lifespan, our health span, our level of interest without just running at the clock, which is what nobody wants. Well, I don't think it's what anybody wants to do. Um, and then, you know, I think people find themselves in a position where they feel that way because maybe they didn't plan to be there. So deal with the low hanging fruit. The mechanics of retiring are not that difficult to understand. And I think once you get that, that is one step towards dealing with the rest of it, which is okay. Now that I understand the mechanics of how this is going to work, now I can deal with the, the fun stuff and the challenging stuff, which is what's my life going to look like for the 20 to 30 years that I no longer have some of the responsibilities that I current have currently have. And what am I going to do to, to make that a valuable and meaningful time? So we've uh, finished our top 10, Jamie. Let's go through, list them. We won't, we won't rehash them, but just list them so that people can have a, a list in their mind. Why don't we start with uh, number one? Yeah, so just sort of top to bottom, you know, we talked about not being careful planning to work too long. So depending on that, having too much money in... In, a, in particular, in, in a corporation, non-registered account, um, i.e. not availing yourself of other strategies to reduce that the impact of that. A subject or a, a, an adjunct to that is that if, if you haven't properly understood what the income splitting options are by the time you get to late in life, then you've probably, potentially, I should say, given up some tax advantages along the way. And if you're not taking advantage of them later in life, then you are definitely currently giving away some tax advantages. Understanding that your wealth planning should be about, it should be comprehensive, meaning it should go beyond just making it to retirement and beyond retiring happily. But if you are, if we can show that you've got excess wealth, how do we deal with that in a thoughtful, effective and responsible way? Um, not tying up too much money in your house or in non-income producing real estate uh, in general. Uh, we also don't want to take too much debt on in life, uh, late in life, I should say. Again, simply because the risks to doing that when you are not earning an income um, and or don't have time to recover uh, are problematic. We are both of the same mind that um, excuse me, uh, permanent insurance is a valuable asset that everybody should consider in an objective way. Um, so be careful when you're told not to do that, because for the most part, uh, that's an opinion and not a fact. Uh, we want to make sure we have contingency plans in place uh, for emergencies. They don't go away once you've passed through midlife. They just change. Uh, subject to that, we want to make sure that we have wills, powers of attorney, and an estate plan in place so that everything is taken care of if something unforeseen happens or by the time we are, you know, I'm going to say with finger quotes, supposed to die uh, after we've lived a long and healthy life. Um, and then finally, this concept of not knowing how to retire, which has sort of a mechanical fundamental piece to it. And then that that conceptual and existential piece, both of those are things you should really work through well before retiring so that that transition is something that is easy for you to do. Wonderful. We have our Jamie and Vu's top 10 list for today. Uh, this has been a very, very productive and informative discussion, Jamie. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to add final words before we close this discussion? No, I mean, I think that these mistakes are sort of this 
you know, you can think of this caricature of an individual who's gotten to the end of their career and has not really given thought or, or given credence to any of these uh, warnings. So as with everything, and I think I mentioned this early earlier in the podcast, your wealth accumulation, tax planning, investment planning, they're all accretive. They all take time to make sense. So we all know that, that you know, the power of time and compound interest is what really gets you, um, you know, an effective return over the long term. I would suggest that, uh, I don't know if there is, but uh, there should be a statement that's very similar to that, which is, you know, time and compounding tax benefits are going to be what really power uh, a retirement and a successful post-employment or late career stage uh, and the transition between the two. Uh, and so time and tax strategies and time and compound interest are going to be very helpful for you to get where you want to go. Um, and, you know, a lot of the financial mistakes that we've just listed are a product of accumulation of, you know, several things we didn't do throughout our life in our early career and mid-career. And so a lot of the things that we've talked about are actually preventable if we have taken certain steps earlier. And so to your point, time, planning, uh, and all these things that accumulate are, are does take time to produce and uh, to mitigate. And so prevention is, as we know in medicine, is probably the best medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, we did one for mid-career physicians. We've done a late-career physician uh, top 10 list. So your top 10 list for your early-career physicians is not listening to those other two podcasts. Um, <laughs> you know, I, there's lots of things that you need to tick off in terms of a checklist that you can do early on in your career. Um, but uh, but you're right. I mean, a lot of what we've chatted about are arriving at a point in your career without thinking of X rather than... Uh, I sorry without previously thinking of X rather than when you get here and you don't do this immediately you're 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 in error um these are all things you should have thought of long before you get to this point much the same as when we did the mid-career one uh, so um so yeah these are you know planning takes time um and then you know being successful with a plan also takes time and I don't mean that in terms of you have to be patient it just actually takes many, many years of tax paying or tax savings or investing or whatever you want to call it uh, in order to get to the point you want to get to. And so you do need to start all of these things early to really get an optimal outcome. Or if you don't want to do a strategy, decide early that that strategy actually is not appropriate for you with facts, numbers, projections, et cetera, not opinions and, and conjecture. Very good. Uh, 200% agree. So as you were talking, I was just thinking of some analogy. You know, when I build a presentation to speak in front of an audience, I always build the presentation and the slide deck with my final message in mind, with the end in mind, what I want to communicate to the audience. And then I work backwards to build my slide deck so that it's aligned and it has a coherent message. And as you were talking about that, that is exactly the same here is that you need to think about this when you're 35, 40, knowing what you want at the end and then work backwards so that everything, as much as possible, is aligned uh, and so that you get the right message at the end. And so uh, I 200% agree. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great an analogy. And I think um, just to add to it, maybe financial planning gives you the end, right? It allows you to articulate. And in many cases, it'll surprise you as to what the end looks like. So, you know, investing with no end in mind just to get a return, that's an exercise in and of itself that is valuable, but is the amount of risk that you're taking necessary for the amount of, uh, for the plan that you have. So that's a great example of where not planning or we're having a plan may change your investment outcome. It may change your investment objectives. It may change the amount of risk you need to think or you think you need to take. Um, so yeah, starting with the end in mind, I mean, that's a, that's a, very sort of um, well sort of well known and seldom practiced expression very well so we will end it there today jamie uh thank you very much for being on the show and uh, coming and sharing your wisdom with us in speaking about you know top 10 financial mistakes made by our early career physicians i did a podcast on that 
two years ago, but I think it's time to revisit that. And I hope you will come back and share more of your insight with us when we do uh, that final version. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this is a great format. Uh, I mean, David Letterman proved it worked. <laughs> uh, it's certainly memorable and uh, it allows for some, you know, some some storytelling and some some sort of hard evidence and some more sort of uh, qualitative evidence uh, as we walk through them. So, uh, so thank you again for having me. As always, I enjoy these podcasts and I hope that your your audience, your listeners, find it helpful. Well, there you go, guys and girls. This was a an amazing podcast discussion with my good friend Jamie List, and he has shared with us a lot, a lot of wisdom about what we can anticipate in our future. So amazing podcast. Thank you very much. And I hope you guys took some golden nuggets out of this episode. I would be remiss if I did not share with you guys my message about our conference, the conference that we're going to have code green financial literacy conference for physicians and dentists. That's going to be held February 2nd, 2024. So in about two months, it's going to be in Toronto at the Novotel Hotel in North York, right across from the North York Centre subway station. It will be a full day conference with lots of financial topics ranging from financial planning, accounting, mortgages, real estate, investment, investment behavior, building a portfolio and portfolio of assets, pensions, RRSPs. So please join us for this event, all day event with food and even a wine and cheese. There is an early bird special uh, happening until December 31st. So the early bird special is $150 plus tax per person. And starting January 1st, it will be $200 per person plus tax. So please visit www.codegreenfinancial.com dot com to browse the website and to register for the conference. I hope to see you all there. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.